You are listening to a message by Travis Scott from our gatherings at Shorebreak. Visit shorebreakchurch.com to get connected with more content. And if you would like to support the gospel being preached in Kona and to thousands online, your tax-deductible donation enables us to further Jesus' mission. Partner with us by giving at shorebreakchurch.com backslash give. Mahalo. Well, aloha. If you could open your Bibles up to the book of James. My name is Toby. I'm one of the pastors here at Shorebreak, and it's an honor to speak with you this morning. Um, Travis is currently eating some carne asada burritos and chimichangas on, uh, on the mainland right now, and he'll be uh, back next week to share with us uh, how his trip went, but also to start our series uh, on the book of Ruth. We just finished up the book of Colossians, which was an awesome study looking at Christ and everything. And next week, so be sure to come back next week, we are starting the book of Ruth. And uh, we're really excited about this new series, as we are when we launch every new series. We're kind of in between this week, but next week talking about Ruth and how God's remnant people who were set apart from those who thought they were doing things right. And uh, as I said, Colossians was an awesome book that we went through, and stay tuned for next week. We're excited about that. Um, I'll leave it at that for Travis to take over and, uh, and elaborate on exactly what we're going to go through with the book of Ruth. So invite your friends next week, invite your coworkers. We're excited about that. The other issue we brought up last week was about uh, our, our air conditioning situation. And for those of you who weren't here, uh, our air conditioning is kind of on its last leg. And so we've been trying to figure out what to do with the air conditioning. We actually, we rent this building and we lease it. And so I, actually one of our obligations is to keep this building up and running the way that it was when we started renting it in the first place. So we have an obligation to keep that air conditioning system running, and we also have an obligation to keep it cool in here so that we can study God's Word uh, without distractions. And so we're asking you to prayerfully consider um, going above and beyond your tithing um, for the next few months to be able to uh, put together about $25,000 so that we can uh, order this air conditioning unit. And it's going to take about, since we live on a big island, uh, and uh, we don't have quite the resources that the mainland does. It's going to take qu quite some time to even get the air conditioning unit built. And so that taking about three months, we want to try to get the money together so that we can order it and have it ready uh, for replacing it. Um, we're kind of uh, hoping that it lasts that long. It's really, again, on its last leg, and we're asking that, uh, that you uh, prayerfully consider that for the church body here. So that's it for announcements. Let's get into uh, God's Word this morning in the book of James, if you could all please stand. So James chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would use me this morning to communicate your truths. I pray that your word is received in a way that honors you and you alone. And as we spend time this morning looking at some difficult issues in our lives, I pray that your name would be lifted high above any other name, above any of our circumstances that might distract our minds. I pray that Jesus, you would continue to transform our hearts and our minds to be more like you. That you would help me to communicate an accurate message of your love. We love you, Lord, and we praise your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, as I said, we spent a lot of time in Colossians going through quite a few different topics from our prayer life to marriage, our relationships, our work, and uh, looking at work as worship. We've covered a lot of bases, and we've seen how Paul really takes a lot of different angles on these different topics and how we can learn how that Christ is in everything in all these aspects of our lives. And Paul is such a gifted writer. I mean, he wrote so many books of the Bible. We just glean from all of his knowledge and his understanding and from his perspective of just being in prison and writing to all these churches and and knowing the culture that he's talking to. He was a gifted writer. And last week, we also talked about surrounding ourselves with people who also had... um, At the end of the book of Colossians, he talked about a list of names that he wanted to continue the process of making disciples of all nations and that that we need to have these close relationships and these people in our lives that are gospel-centered and gospel-focused that can encourage our lives. And it's not that we're not supposed to hang out with a non-believer, but realizing that there is a purpose in hanging out with a non-believer and that we have a role of continuing to want to strive to to be more like Christ. And we, um, we talked about several different names of the, of the Bible at the end of that book. And what brought to my mind was another book and person in the Bible, and that is James. And how, in addition to Paul, how much I would have wanted to have someone like James in my life to uh, be able to speak truths into my life and be able to be a, a disciple or uh, somebody that I could talk with and 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 glean their knowledge from. And James was one of those guys who was, in comparison to Paul, kind of a more of a straight shooter. He obviously didn't write that many books of the Bible, but he kind of told us how it was, and he moved on to the next topic and just trusted that we were going to understand it to the, to the extent that he did. And so I think we have a lot to learn from James, as we did from Paul. 
And James has an interesting perspective in, in how he was brought up as well as the role that he had in the church. And he was known for being a very bold man. He was very humble and he was a very influential religious leader of the time. And Jesus referred to him as one of the pillars alongside Peter and John. And he was devoted to righteousness. He was a leader of the Jerusalem church. James also has the interesting perspective of being the brother of Christ and growing up with Jesus. Now, I have to be honest with you, when I first became a Christian, um, hearing about the Jesus story of, of Mary and Joseph and, and the birth of Christ and, and then that Jesus was brought up with his parents and that he did have brothers and sisters, uh, I kind of idealized this relationship of this kind of perfect family. And I don't know about you, but kind of growing up with Jesus as a brother, you know, it's got to be pretty cool, right? Um, but, you know, you look at the reality of the situation, you, you have a brother who's um, claiming to be God, and, um, you know, you're that younger brother going, I know he's sinless, but he's saying he's God. And, uh, you know, how, how much can you take that as truth. And, and James actually had to grow up doubting, and he did. He doubted his brother uh, for most of his life. And so that's the reality that, that we come into, that James, being the, the younger brother, doubting Jesus, but then also that James was there when Jesus went through his ministries and when he uh, taught the gospel message and when he went to the cross. And James was there for those times too, and he was there when Jesus was raised from the dead as well. And so we see a spectrum of James going through this process of not being a believer to being a believer. So James was there. And most importantly, he was there to confirm the truth that was being revealed to him. He had doubted for so long he saw the gospel firsthand when he conquered death on the cross, and he became one of Jesus' biggest fans and supporters. We also know that James was the first book written out of the New Testament. And it's one of the reasons that James probably doesn't talk much about the crucifixion or the resurrection in his book, because it was pretty recent. And it doesn't mean that, that James saw things differently than Paul. He just had a different perspective on things. And if Paul was always asking the question of how is salvation received or obtained, then James was asking the question of how is salvation verified? So not conflicting, but more in harmony with one another, with still the same gospel message wanting to be given to the people. So back into the book of James. He starts off in a very humble and forthright manner of, of his greeting. He starts off calling himself a servant, not the leader of the church, not the pastor of the first church, not the brother of Christ, but a servant. James was a humble man. He didn't want to be arrogant in his letter to the Jewish Christians. Most people would have started off with that they were the brother of Christ and that people should listen to him because he was the brother of Christ. But what an amazing and awesome statement to, to be referred to as a servant, or in some versions, a bondservant. 
And for us to understand that that was his brother. He's referring to his being his brother's servant. And for a lot of us, that'd probably be the last thing we'd admit or commit to is to be our brother or our sibling's servant. And James, he was in the family of Jesus, and he, like all of us who believe in Christ, need to know how important it is to be a servant. He didn't want anybody to think that he was better than them, and he wanted to be known first and foremost as that servant. He understood that a servant was one who was deprived of personal freedom, one who has fully come into control of his master, and that master was Jesus. And we touched a little on this last week as well in our discussion of loving Jesus and that for some of us, it's, it's pretty easy to say, I love Jesus and that I love what Jesus stood for and that he died for my sins and I understand that and I love him for that. But when it comes to church, it's, it's a different story sometimes. I think some of us have gone to church and, and we've, we've been hurt. And so... We don't have that same love for the church that we have for Jesus. We think it's, it's separate. But Jesus loved the church. He loved the church as his bride. And so we need to know that we need to love what Jesus loved. And loving the church is part of that. And loving the church means serving the church. Serving the church and the body of Christ and so James affirms this in labeling himself as a servant. So what else? What else is he telling us through these passages after putting the priority on being known as a servant? He simply states in the next verses that life is just not easy. He's not sugarcoating anything here. He's telling us that in this first part of his letter, he wants us not to miss the big picture that as believers, we're going to have hardships. We're going to have trials. We're going to have difficult times. And I think as Christians, we don't give James enough credit for what he's saying here because oftentimes as, uh, as religious people, counting it all joy is almost a mantra and that when we go through difficult times or we hear friends or family go through difficult times, the automatic response of count it all joy is really avoiding really the, the deeper issue. And just to say count it all joy doesn't address really what God wants to show us through this. And... For the most part, when somebody says that, it's almost as if saying, you know what, that trial you're going through, it'll be over soon. You just need to spend more time in the Word. You just need to spend more time going to church. You need to do this and that, and then God will make you happy. That trial will be shorter because you're doing what you're supposed to do. Count it all joy. It'll get better soon. But what do we say to that person whose hardship is an enduring hardship? or for a long time, someone maybe who's diagnosed with cancer, or someone who's lost a loved one? What do we say to every person who has been through these trials that don't extend for very 
do extend for a long period of time. James is saying is that joy is not the same as happiness. Just because we're not happy all the time, that doesn't mean that God is punishing us, doesn't mean that God is failing us, that God is abandoning us, doesn't mean that God is being mean to us. But that's how we feel, doesn't it? When we're in that trial, our emotions take over and we stop thinking about what God wants us to think about. So we need to count it all joy, but James is putting it in a different context and that it's not to be confused with happiness. James uses the word pasan sharon, which in Greek means all joy, pure joy, or yes, we're talking about joy here. And that happiness is just a weak term used in place of joy. And even more so, it's misleading because it's really a subjective state. Whereas James instructing us to take an objective judgment of counting it all joy. And happiness gives us that sense that we should expect a carefree life and being in a constantly cheerful mood. And none of these is what James had in mind. He wants us to know that it's okay to not be okay. He acknowledges the presence of extremely unhappy experiences in our lives, but at the same time, counseling us to rejoice in those very instances of hardship. So we've hit the count it all joy aspect of the verses here. And life's not going to be easy, but what else does God want us to know through what James has written? We need to know not only that trials are going to come, but we should be expecting them. In 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, why do we think that when we're doing everything that we think we should be doing, that our life will be without trials? James says, when you face trials. He doesn't say if. It's a guarantee. And God doesn't have a big whiteboard up in the sky and and list our names down by people who are going to have trials and, and not have trials. We should be expecting them. It's when, not if. Everyone will be tested, and there's not just going to be one trial. He says trials with an S. Trials is plural. There's going to be more than one. So we know that there's going to be more chance, more, more than one chance for us to learn this one. So why can't we learn it quickly and move on? But that's not the point. It's actually the opposite of the point. These trials are going to be more than one area as well. They're going to be in our jobs. They're going to be in our marriages. They're going to be in our relationships. They're going to be in our spiritual lives. They're going to be in our parenting with our kids. We can't ever expect to get the point of not having to go through trials. And as we draw closer to God, and as we go through the process of sanctification, we shouldn't expect God to give us less trials. I mean, does it make sense that as our faith grows, and as our walk grows, and as we learn from our trials and become more perfect and complete, that we would not want to continue to be challenged in this way? If we really understood this and expected trials to be coming our way, we wouldn't buy into the whole happily ever after mentality. 
I think I probably blame Disney and all the uh, romantic comedies out there ever written for this misperception in life. Um, but they're probably the only ones, the makers of those movies, as well as probably the 50% of marriages that don't make it, are the only ones that really buy into the happily ever mentality. But don't misunderstand me. I, I think it's a blessing to be happy, of course. I am pro-happiness. Um, but what I don't agree with is the expectation of thinking everyone should be happy continuously. I mean, we don't fall asleep with a smile on our faces and wake up with a smile on our faces either. I wish, I wish. But we don't understand what the Bible stands for. We don't understand what it says about this particular instance. Because understanding the Bible and what it stands for helps us to realize that counting it all joy is how we prove who we are in Christ. This is our opportunity to show how our relationship with Christ is above all and through all the most important thing. We have to think of it as a spiritual test that we actually want to take. Most of us have had some sort of test in our lives through school or, or the driver's test or and we take it begrudgingly because we have to prove some sort of knowledge that we either pass or fail. If we expect the test and know how to study, more like we are to pass. But expecting the test and realizing that we need to expect the trials is actually half the battle. Now, I think this is why God blessed me and my wife with our fourth child. Were we surprised? Yes, we were. My wife and I, I guess, didn't get it when we had our first three boys of how to be sleep-deprived and still function. He wanted to make sure we understood how it was with a baby girl as well. And of, uh, of course, he knows what is best. So um, I wouldn't change anything for that precious, precious little gift that has been given to us. But these issues and these trials should not be a surprise to us. And isn't it interesting how our perspective changes as well? What was initially a trial that we stressed and cried over became this wonderful blessing that we would never want to give up. Now talk to me again when she becomes a teenager. I'll probably want to be sleep-deprived again, but we'll see. But don't take this message as that I've got it all figured out either, that I expect every trial that comes my way, that I recognize that it's a spiritual test of my faith, and dependence on God, because that is far from the truth. I also want to stand, I don't want to stand up here and tell you about all the trials that are going on in my life to say that I have it any worse than any of you. We are all in the same boat together, and hopefully by the end of this message, you'll have a different perspective on that next trial that comes your way, or a trial that you're currently dealing with. And not someone else's trial either, because our own trial becomes... Oftentimes, the first thing, others' trials become the first thing that comes to mind when someone else is struggling. We end up comparing our trials and ranking them as to whether or not we would perceive them as a trial. And most of us think that we have better answers for other people's trials, don't we? If I were that person, I'd do it completely differently. Well, good for you. It's not your trial. It's not your test. And no one really asked you for your opinion. We'll, we'll get to wisdom in a little bit, but uh, this isn't wisdom, this is judgment. And so we know that life is hard, and we need to expect our trials, 
And the reason God has put these tests in our lives is so that we can develop steadfastness. Other versions might say perseverance, but the point is that there is a reason for that trial. And it's not just for us to suffer. Endurance, steadfastness, perseverance, we all need to recognize that this is the result of whatever trial we are facing. If we go over to Romans 5.3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Now, when I look at my life and some of the most enduring times for me, probably going through medical residency, and for those of you who I don't know, I, I am a physician in the community here, and going through medical residency was probably one of the toughest times in my life. And for those of you who watch House or... Uh, Where's Jarrett? Is Jarrett here? Good. All right. Amen. Uh, or for you ladies, Grey's Anatomy. Yes, you probably know more about the life of a resident than I do because uh, doesn't Hollywood perceive things better than our, ourselves anyway in those situations? No, not at all. Um, my wife will tell you she can't stand watching medical shows with me. I last probably about five minutes before I have to voice my opinion about how ridiculous they are. They are so overdramatized, misleading, ridiculous. Uh, about five minutes is about how much I can handle. And, uh, and everyone thinks for some reason that I'm up to date on the latest medical show and drama. Like, have you, you saw that last show, right? No, I didn't, and I don't want to. Um, and then it's followed up with, well, what medical show, show do you watch? And I say, none of them. I don't watch any of them. It's, it's, it's over. I, I can't stand it. There is one show that's off the air, though, that I would recommend. Any Scrubs fans out there? Okay, all right. That show is probably the closest to reality of how my life was during residency. But uh, that's the only show that I'll ever pitch. Um, and that's pretty sad, actually. Uh, now, having gone through uh, three years of a residency here in Hawaii, um, you know, Everyone thinks that we're on vacation here 24-7 in Hawaii anyway, right, on the mainland. Um, it was a difficult time to have that perception from everyone and also be in a hospital about 80 hours a week, spending the night there, and uh, wasn't really the best of times for my wife and I. And then to throw having a child on top of that was, was an added blessing. Um, but for a physician, uh, the years we spend in residency is our training ground, and it's where our knowledge is put to the test. It's in an environment where we're sleep-deprived and mentally and physically exhausted. It's a test of endurance and, conf and confirmation that we can still practice medicine in a stressful conditions when patients' lives are at stake. Unfortunately, as they've done research on interns and residents in teaching hospitals, uh, they found that there's an increase in death rate in July of every year at teaching hospitals. And uh, the reason is that we've got medical students that are now becoming interns taking care of patients and they're going through these stresses of life, and, and they're not able to keep up. And so that first month, they're seeing that it is not working out for people who are in the hospital that time. But things are changing. Things are changing. Medical education is changing. Those hour requirements, as well as how many hours of a shift you can work, are changing. It used to be, uh, when I was in residency, we couldn't work more than 30 hours of a shift, and now they're changing it to 16, so... There is hope 
for our medical community. Fortunately, Kona doesn't have a teaching hospital, so you're safe. And you know I'm lying when I'm talking about Kona community. Sorry. <laughs> oh. Sorry, I hope I didn't offend any of you who, who may work there. Um, isn't, uh, <laughs> but isn't this the type of scenario and the same thing that we should expect in our relationship with God? Don't I want to be sure that I continue to have a trust and love and commitment to him even when I'm at my worst? Where is the true test of my faith if I don't have these type of trials? I don't really think we want to know because that would be an untested faith, and that's a very dangerous place to be. It takes no faith, there is no growth, and there's no maturity. And do we really want to have a faith that doesn't require this? So then why aren't we asking the, the, uh, the question of, um, or why aren't we asking for more trials instead of a life of luxury? Well, I think James helps us to further elaborate on this process by instead of asking for more trials, we understand things that we should and shouldn't do during times of these trials. Jumping to verses 5 through 8. We need to ask and plea for God to give us wisdom. We have to realize that our initial response to these trials might not be the route that he wants us to take. Wisdom is the practical aspect of what we do and not just what we know. So we ask knowing that God gives generously in this way. And we trust that God will provide this to us when we seek it. Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And I think Matthew is referring to wisdom in these respects. We need to ask God for wisdom without fear, for God gives without holding your failures or your lack of wisdom against you. God is not a harsh father who responds to our needs by reminding us of our faults. Christ has made atonement for our sin. We receive justification by responding with faith, not by trying with good deeds to become righteous enough to deserve God's favor. In the same way, when we ask for wisdom, God responds to his own people with grace and unconditional grace. And when is James specifically guiding us to ask for wisdom? Well, it's right when we feel like it the least, right in the middle of that trial, right when we are at our peak of emotions, right when we're going through the difficult time that is consuming our minds and our hearts, right when we're in the middle of it consuming all of our attention. We want to try to fix these things on our own, and that's our gut response. We think we can see the underlying problem without seeking wisdom from God. And it's these times that we need to stop and ask God for wisdom that he gives generously. We need to ask and plea in prayer for this to happen so that the scales can be removed from our eyes and we can see the issues that God wants us to see and not what we want to see. Proverbs 2.6, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Now, when I think about wisdom, sometimes I wonder if this is why God has, work, has me working in a nursing home. I'm surrounded by a bunch of older folks uh, who definitely have been through their fair share of trials. And I was actually kind of surprised this week when I 
went in to check on one of my dementia patients who's in her later 70s. Um, I walked in, and she kind of had a surprised look on her face. And she said, well, look at that, as if she had known me for years. And I typically, I, I don't correct them in these instances. I let them go with it and kind of keep the conversation going to see where it goes, because it's interesting sometimes. <laughs> and I said, well, look at what? And she said, your beard. What's the family think of that? It's so bushy. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, my kids actually love it. And uh, I took a poll last night just to make sure that my kids love it. And they all raised their hand. And even my year-and-a-half daughter raised her hand. And I think it was just because the boys were too. But <laughs> I said, I think my wife is still undecided. But, uh, you know, we're kind of taking it as it comes. And so then she looks at me and she says, yeah, but it's so gray. And I said... I'm looking at a lady who's demented in a nursing home. Uh, it took me to double-check myself just to hold back from saying, well, who are you looking at? Um, but I asked for wisdom, and God gave it to me. I didn't say anything, so hopefully I didn't offend her. Um, <laughs> but there is a point to this story. Um, you know, as working with the older folks and uh, looking at their trials, you know, gray hair might be an example of somebody and how many trials that they've been through. But when we're specifically looking at wisdom, there's no correlation there with the gray hairs on our head. Um, and, uh, you know, God wants us to focus on wisdom. He doesn't want us to focus on our trials. He wants us to focus on asking for that wisdom and seeking it with all of our hearts. And so we, we know we need to ask for and plead for wisdom, but James also tells us what not to do. And in the passage, he specifically relates to not doubting God. He says that doubt is instability, instability and represents a divided heart. He's emphasizing that we need to have a faith in the grace of God, which enables faith to be exercised even within our hardships and deprivation. His warning about doubt is in reference to being double-minded. And this is a double-souled person whose heart is divided who has doubt in their relationship with God. And that doubt is a, is a vacillation between relying on ourselves and relying on God. They're not looking to God from a stance of faith in these instances, and that's where God promises that he does not give wisdom. And this vacillation is compared to the waves of the ocean and gives us an image which stands in contrast to steadfastness, which we talked about earlier. Now, for those of you who have been to Southern California uh, in Oceanside, even along the coastline in Southern California, there's lots of piers. And uh, piers go out into the ocean. Sometimes there's um, restaurants at the end, or lots of people like to go fishing. Um, but in Oceanside, it's a little bit different. Um, it was actually one of, the, one of my favorite spots to surf there because um, you had a wide stretch of, of uh, shoreline, and it usually wasn't too crowded. The pier got a little bit crowded, but at the pier, in order for the lifeguards to kind of know whether or not you were really uh, not in a danger zone of, of, of running into the pier or injuring yourself, they had uh, these signs, and you could only see them when you were out in the ocean uh, as you looked to the shoreline. But there were these two letters, and the letters were O and K. And so they were a distance apart, 
so that when you were more than 100 feet away from the pier, it would read OK. And if you happened to drift too close to the pier, it would read KO, knocked out. And uh, so the lifeguards were uh, very attentive to whether or not you were in the KO zone, and they would be uh, very quick to come out to you and let you know that you were in the wrong zone. Uh, but you know what this reminded me of is in relationship to this verse, and that those of us who doubt are like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And it happens when we lose our sights on God and we focus on ourselves. We get tossed by the wind and in the ocean and end up close to that pier. And when we realize this, we look up and we see a sign from God that you're not okay anymore. You're about to be knocked out. And we lose that reference point and lack the wisdom that God so abundantly gives to us for those who ask for it. And so what is that reference point that keeps us grounded what is that one true trial that our lives should always come back to? What one true trial fails in comparison to any trial that we will ever go through? That one true trial is the trial that Christ conquered for us. The only trial that really matters. The trial that has set us free from our transgressions. The trial that allowed us to place faith in a man who was undeserving of the trial in the first place the trial of sacrifice and persecution, trial of humiliation and embarrassment, the true trial of Jesus on the cross. And for those of us who are believers, who God has changed our hearts, we've repented of our sins, knowing that sin exists in this world and that our perfect Father in heaven and that Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins, who are we to expect that our lives should be without trials. With all that Jesus went through on the cross for us, expecting a life without trials is not the prize for having a relationship with Jesus. We know that an untested faith is a dangerous place to be. and We have to be very careful not to draw a correlation between our trials and believing that they're a lack of faith and that they're a result of a lack of faith. And it isn't it interesting when we look at what's fair and what's not fair? And as I mentioned, I have four kids, and 99% of the arguments that come from my kids with each other and us are in response to what's fair and what's not fair. I feel like I'm constantly trying to get across the message that life isn't fair. And I'm not quite sure they're old enough to understand what I mean, but... I continue to say it over and over again in hopes that they'll remember it at least. But what is it that they're thinking is not fair? Most of the time it's whether or not one of the kids got to do something that the other didn't or they got to play with a toy that the other didn't or got to have some sort of privilege. But what's the underlying issue there? They think it's not fair because they don't think I love them the same. They think that I'm giving a privilege to somebody because, or one of the children, because I love them more. And isn't that the same thing that we see in our view of Christ? That if we have too many trials in our lives, that Christ doesn't love us as much as other Christians. 
Why do I have to go through this when someone else doesn't have to? We see this all from one dimension. And that that one dimension is that this trial, I'm the only one going through this. No one understands how difficult this is. If you were in this situation, you'd doubt too. But again, who was the one that endured more trials and more suffering than we will ever in our lives? Jesus. And that's what it's all about, because Jesus is the whole reason that we can even consider enduring these trials. Our trials will never even come into comparison for what Christ endured on the cross for those of us who believe. Who are we to complain one ounce when Christ suffered the biggest trial? To be accused, wrongly convicted, and humiliated to the point of death on the cross makes our trials seem really trivial. And how easily we can forget. And I'm just as guilty as the rest of us. This message is as much for me as for you. Um, It's not fair that Christ went to the cross for my sins. But Christ wasn't concerned about being fair. He knew that the only way for us to be free from our sins was to go to that cross. Romans 8:18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. When we get to heaven, we're going to see all of God's glory and be in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus. What an amazing day that will be. And the trials and tribulations that presented themselves on this side will be nothing, not even to compare with that glory. And that glory of being with Christ forever, isn't that our heart's desire? To be united with him forever. The trials you go through, they don't distance us from him, but they should bring bring us closer to him. And no matter what these trials are in your lives, they will never separate you from his love. Let's remember Romans 8:38 as we close. That neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor present things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we love you. We love your word. And we know that you love us regardless of the trials that cloud our minds from your truth. We are so grateful that you gave us the book of James to give us a perspective of true joy and a perspective of the one true trial that you suffered for us. Help us to continue to strive 
to understand your message of salvation, and to use those trials in our lives to direct others to a relationship with you. And as we go into a time of worship, we ask that you continue to work on our hearts and our minds in a way that is holy and pleasing to you and you alone. We love you, Jesus. Amen. We hope that Jesus is doing a work in your life from the message that you just heard. We would love to hear how you were impacted and what was impressed on your heart. Share your story by emailing connect at shorebreakchurch.com. And if you don't know Jesus as God, Lord and Savior, or you have more questions, send us an email to info at shorebreakchurch.com so we can get you dialed in with a free Bible and resources for your new relationship with Jesus.